Thanks for listening to A Little War Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we continue our coverage of the death of Queen Elizabeth and King Charles' first full day as monarch, including his first address to the nation. Canada's High Commissioner to the United Kingdom, Ralph Goodale, joins me to talk about the mood in London, his memories of the Queen, and what role Canada will play in the events to honour her life. Author Tom Rackman in England looks at the impact of the Queen's death on an already divided Britain struggling under the weight of Brexit and high inflation. And we head to Australia to find out if a new king may reignite talks of cutting ties with the monarchy in that country. You may have seen today that people from throughout London, across Britain and around the world have congregated around Buckingham Palace to pay their respects to Queen Elizabeth. Those bouquets of flowers that had written notes, I remember them from when Diana passed away, when Diana was was killed. And in this case, it's different, it feels. It feels different. It feels like more of a celebration of life. Uh, but there's sadness to all that at the gates of Buckingham Palace, creating a wall of condolences more than a meter high, can you imagine, by the end of the day. Uh, Canadian Irene Granger-Brown was there. I mean, till two days before she died, she was still on the job. Like, I just think that's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And to see all these people who cared so much about her, it's not something I've ever seen in Canada or anywhere else for that matter. The new king made a surprise visit. Charles III returned to London and stopped off in front of the palace to greet people and read some of those notes placed on those bouquets. Later, the king delivered a nine-minute address to Britain, Canada and, the, Canada, and the rest of the Commonwealth and the world. I pay tribute to my mother's memory, and I honor her life of service. I know that her death brings great sadness to so many of you. And I share that sense of loss beyond measure with you all. On behalf of all my family, I can only offer the most sincere and heartfelt thanks for your condolences and support. They mean more to me than I can ever possibly express. Charles will formally take on the role as the Ascension Council meets at St. James's Palace tomorrow morning. Our High Commissioner to the UK will be part of that meeting. And joining me now from Canada House in London, a short walk from Buckingham Palace, is Canada's High Commissioner, longtime member of Parliament from Saskatchewan, Ralph Goodale. Thanks for your time tonight. Well, very nice to be here. I know, you know, a lot of us have been watching from afar. You're right there uh, in Trafalgar Square, not just a short walk away, really, from Buckingham Palace. What has the mood been like over the last 24 hours? Oh, it's been very, uh, very somber. Uh, the the grief is uh, is is real. Um, lots of people uh, uh, turning up at Buckingham Palace or uh, uh, other royal locations like Windsor Castle. I'm, I'm told even up uh, at, at Balmoral in Scotland and uh, and Holyrood in in Edinburgh, uh, all over the uh, uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, this is an amazing woman who has been a part of everybody's life for more than seven decades and uh all of a sudden she's gone and uh even when even when that's to be expected or seems inevitable when when it actually happens it um it, it leaves a huge vacuum uh so i think the uh, the grief the outpouring of of emotion and and affection i think all of that is very real uh, as as people are uh, saying goodbye and saying thank you in a in a very in a very serious and genuine way, there was that um, that uh, sketch that uh, uh, Her Majesty did with Paddington the Bear as mm-hmm. part of her jubilee uh, celebrations, and uh, when the camera zeroes right in on Paddington and he says. Thank you, Your Majesty, for everything. That uh, that really captures, I think, the the genuine sentiment of uh, of British people, uh, and I think you'll find a lot of that in Canada too, because yeah. Yeah. Uh, she uh, she was the Queen of Canada, and Canada was her most favorite place away from home. And Canada House was a place where you are now, uh, our seat in uh, in in London, right beside Trafalgar Square, as I was mentioning. Um, she she had a great affection for 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 Canada in general, uh, and that that reflect that was reflected when you first um, 
took up your new position? Uh, yes. Uh, when I arrived here, it was the latter part of, uh, of April of last year. And uh, COVID was just beginning to uh, uh, be relieved a little bit and things were just beginning to, to get back to normal. And I thought, uh, well, uh, there won't be any uh, opportunity for an early audience with, uh, with the Queen because there's such a backlog because of, of COVID. There's so many ambassadors that have to present their credentials. And uh, this, we'll, we'll get around to this in a few months. Uh, but within two weeks, the phone rang and it was it was Buckingham Palace saying uh, the Queen wants to receive you uh, next week. Uh, and uh, I said I expressed a little surprise that it was all happening so quickly. And they said, well, it's Canada and Her Majesty wants to do it now. So uh, that was no uh, uh, comment on me or, or any other high commissioner. It was an expression of her uh, affection for Canada. She visited uh, uh, 22 times, once as Princess Elizabeth and 21 times uh, as as the Queen. Uh, and one thing, she made a point of getting into every region of the country. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just uh, one or two major cities. Uh, she was into uh, urban places, rural places, north and south, every province, every territory, every demographic group that you can, you can think of. Um, and and she had a special interest in indigenous people, and that showed in in her itineraries and who she went to went to meet with. How was I understand that you did that on Zoom? I think a lot of us were quite uh, quite impressed with the Queen's use of Zoom over uh, of technology oh. in general. But you did that meeting on Zoom. How did it go? Well, it, it was amazing. Uh, I was in a room in Buckingham Palace, and she was at Windsor Castle. Uh, and, and no doubt the uh, the technology was uh, was pretty reliable, um, but she uh, for for a person who was ninety six ninety five years old at that time, uh, she used the technology exceptionally well. You know, there's always a question of where do you look for the camera and how do you keep your focus on the camera rather than all the other things that are distracting you and and uh, and so forth. Uh, and and uh, you had the impression that she was sitting right there. That she just, in a in a very personal way, came right through the screen, uh, and uh, again, as as is, is her way, uh, she left you with the feeling that uh, you were the only person that she was interested in right now at this moment. Uh, she wasn't distracted, uh, and she used the technology to great great advantage. And her love of and her affection for Canada obviously hadn't hadn't waned over the years, I imagine. No, not at all. Uh, she talked about uh, visiting uh, the polar bears in, in northern Manitoba. Uh, she uh, she she talked about her her uh, her visits to uh, uh, the Rocky Mountains, across the prairies, uh, many locations in Ontario and Quebec and Atlantic Canada. Uh, and she just rattled them off. Uh, so she had a, a, a great memory of uh, of all of those uh, 22 different times. Uh, that she uh, that she visited Canada. And what's interesting too is that uh, Prince Charles, while while his visits uh, now now King Charles, while his visits to Canada were uh, probably of a slightly lower profile, uh, he's been there 19 times. Uh, so uh, and again into every virtually every province and region and and uh, visiting with uh, all the different segments of uh, of Canadian society and paying very close attention to indigenous people. So uh, he uh, he starts with a with a very solid foundation based on the precedents established by his mother. Uh, there must be an awful lot of planning going on now for you at Canada House for the for all the staff at the High Commission, uh, because we expect a lot of people will be coming your way very shortly. Uh, yes, uh, it's it's going to be a very a very busy week. Uh, the the planning uh, has of course been going on for many months. Uh, because sadly, for uh, for the UK and for the palace and for uh, countries in the realm like Canada, it it was obvious that this day would come at some point, uh, and a lot of planning goes into it. So people have been working at it for for a long time. Uh, there is a very meticulous plan laid out. It stretches over a period of uh, 
of uh, 10 to 12 days. Uh, there are some very strict rules of protocol that, uh, that have, to be, have to be followed. Um, of course, uh, King Charles became King Charles uh, the moment his mother passed away. Uh, there's no hiatus in responsibility. Uh, all of her duties and responsibilities devolved to him uh, at the at the moment of her of her death. So uh, he is uh, and has been from that time uh, King Charles the uh, There is though protocol and ceremony that goes into uh, officially installing him in in that position. Uh, the first is the meeting of the accession council, as it's called. Um, this is a, a, a branch of the of the Privy Council uh, that uh, uh, Canadians are a part of because we are uh, a realm country where the where the Queen uh, has been the head of state and where where King Charles uh, is now the head of state. Uh, so we're a part of that, and Canada's member there is the High Commissioner. Uh, right. So the the uh, uh, the accession council will will meet uh, and formally proclaim uh, the uh, the accession of um, of King Charles. And um, you'll be and, there, uh, right? And I will be there, uh, and uh, that will uh, uh, that will happen uh, uh, during the day on Saturday. Um, uh, and then there are there are uh, receptions and uh, and speeches. Uh, the new king will uh, deliver an address to uh, to Parliament, uh, and while that's going on over a period of a couple of days, all the delegations are going to begin to arrive. Uh, the public servants that uh, from around the the uh, uh, around the world, the public servants that that uh, administer all of this program, the Canadian Forces personnel, the RCMP personnel that uh, that will be uh, part of this uh, part of this effort, the lying in state. Uh, begins on uh, next Wednesday, uh, and it uh, it lasts for uh, for uh, five days, uh, and then the uh, state funeral will will happen. Uh, it would appear that that will be held on Monday. Now that could be moved uh, a, a, another day down the road. Uh, the British are being flexible to make sure that they've. They've uh, covered all their bases and got everything done properly, uh, so there's no last-minute glitch. But uh, it would appear five days of lying in state, and then the and then the uh, um, the state funeral uh, on uh, on Monday. Um, the ceremony, you can imagine, will be meticulous. There is no one in the world that does ceremony and protocol uh, as carefully as the British. And uh, they will do, I am absolutely confident, a profound job in this case, because it will be an enduring tribute to Her Majesty. Do we know what Canada's role will be in, in, in that, in, in the whole funeral process? Do we know whether we will, well, obviously, I believe the Prime Minister will be there, but do we know how Canada may play a role in this? You mentioned, obviously, the forces the, are there, the RCMP. The, the official um, mourners laid out in protocol are actually three. For, for each country. Uh, in our case, it'll be the governor general uh, and the prime minister and the high commissioner. Um, and and you, you multiply that by 190 countries around the world that, uh, uh, that will have some representation. And you can imagine how big and complicated uh, this, this is. Uh, but it, uh, uh, there will no doubt be uh, uh, a tremendous number of bilateral meetings going on uh, between Canadians and the British, uh, as well as Canadians and others uh, that will just happen to be in town at the uh, at the same time. Uh, but the, uh, the the mourning process is is laid out very precisely in protocol that there are three official mourners. I know this is, you know, you're a longtime MP from Wisconsin. This has been a tough week from Saskatchewan. Uh, we both noticed that the Queen's, one of the final things the Queen did was send out a message of condolence uh, to the people of your province. Um, tell me a bit about that. That must have been something that struck you. Well, it, uh, it was uh, a, an awful period in, uh, in Saskatchewan. Uh, so many lives so needlessly taken in such a, a tragic and, uh, and uh, brutal way. 
uh, people will, I'm sure, analyze the details of uh, what happened and how it happened and um, could it have been avoided in some way? What can we do to make sure this this uh, this doesn't happen again? Uh, how have the police responded and and uh, and so forth? Um, this is this is going to take uh, uh, an awful lot of careful thought and introspection for people to fully come to terms with it. But it was it was helpful in the uh, process of grappling with it and dealing with it that uh, Her Majesty, uh, obviously in, in declining health and in a vulnerable situation herself, uh, took the time to send a message to say she was, she was thinking about the uh, people of Canada and specifically the people of Saskatchewan who were suffering through this, uh, through this awful tragedy. And uh, that just capsulates, I think, the, uh, uh, the kind of person she was, uh, selfless, setting aside her own situation to care about other people. And people in Saskatchewan were very grateful for that. Ralph Goodale, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Very nice to talk to you. And uh, God save the King. And God bless Your Majesty. Well, as we've been mentioning today, it was a big day. You know, you don't get a chance. Obviously, as the old saying goes, you never get a second chance to make first impressions. And today, uh, King Charles III, it was his first full day as monarch. He delivered his first address to the uh, population today, 6 p.m., a nine-minute address to uh, to the British people, to everyone, to the Commonwealth as well, to us at 6 p.m. local time. Um, he vows to carry on the Queen's lifelong service or dedication to lifelong service. He acknowledged that the country, though, that he inherits is vastly different from the one that his mother inherited at the age of 25 back in 1952. When the Queen came to the throne, Britain and the world were still coping with the privations and aftermath of the Second World War and still living by the conventions of earlier times. In the course of the last 70 years, we have seen our society become one of many cultures and many faiths. Now, one of the ways that Charles, who is 73, by the way, he's the oldest person to take the British throne. One of the ways that he has over the past, the whole family has over the past 10 years or so, tried to reach out to a broader section of the population is through the kids. It's really through Prince William and Kate. And today... Um, he announced, King Charles, that Prince William would succeed him as Prince of Wales, Catherine becoming the Princess of Wales, the first to carry that title since Diana. With Catherine beside him, our new Prince and Princess of Wales will, I know, continue to inspire and lead our national conversations, helping to bring the marginal to the centre ground, where vital help can be given. I want also to express my love for Harry and Meghan as they continue to build their lives overseas. He also said something quite interesting. You know, way back when um, Queen Elizabeth and then Princess Elizabeth spoke of devoting uh, her life really to this service, to this calling, a devotion to lifelong service, she called it. He also spoke of it today, a hint perhaps that he will not be passing uh, his title on to his son. Queen Elizabeth was a life well lived, a promise with destiny kept, and she is mourned most deeply in her passing. That promise of lifelong service I renew to all today. And by that I mean that he will not be handing the monarchy over to his son before he passes away. Well, there's been a lot of speculation about that over the years. Still, again, at 73, he watches over a nation in turmoil. The impact of the departure from the European Union, known as Brexit, continues to divide the country. A new prime minister just took over this past week after scandals forced Boris Johnson to resign. A recession looms. Inflation is high. Britons are bracing for a winter of sky-high utility prices on top of it all. So, there is a lot on his plate, and in the absence of the Queen, will a new king be able to find his footing quickly? Joining me now with more on that from London is Tom Rockman. He's a Canadian-British author based in England, whose novels include The Imperfectionists and the upcoming The Imposters. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having me on, Ben. 
it's just the mood. It came as a bit of a, you know, I, I think everyone was understood that at 96, perhaps, obviously her days were not eternal. Uh, but at the same time, it all happened very quick. And it must have been a shock. Yeah, I, I think that's right. It did happen both um, slowly and all of a sudden, you know, that that she had been notably weakening over the past year or two and engaging in fewer public activities. So it was clear that that she wasn't her old self. And as you noted, at age 96, it would have been beyond miraculous if she had been. She actually was quite remarkably persisting with some of her regular duties and some of her passions as well, uh, up until pretty near the end. You know, she she was, uh, I know that last week I heard she was actually talking to one of her horse trainers about what they should do with an upcoming race and things like that. So she, she continued to be um, intellectually uh, alert and lively, um, but her body was failing her. And that was that was progressively clear. And then once news came through um, yesterday, it was it was clear. I mean, the, the palace tends not to give out uh, any information that it doesn't wish to. And it typically doesn't talk about the health of of anybody in the royal family unless unless it's something that they, they have to address directly. Um, in this case, the the thing that really caught everybody's attention was that the family was gathering around her. And that obviously was a message that something was very different this time. And, um, and you know, uh, one can imagine that she drifted off quite swiftly and peacefully in the end. Yeah, I, I still though I get the sense that in, in in England at least in London that it was it was met with a sort of sense of of shock and disbelief. Yeah, that's I mean the the I don't think disbelief, but I think that certainly there was there was sort of shock that it's a different era for many people that that um, just that, that there's a certain sense of permanence about the Queen if you are any less than than you know let's say seventy five years old uh, then she is the only person who you've ever known as the the monarch she served 70 years and um and she she feels uh, not so much like a monarch actually just as a um a, a part of nature almost and i think that one of the most startling things for many people that they've talked about is how odd it feels to talk about king charles iii and um, and to know that there are so many consequent things that are going to change that just don't quite roll off the tongue. And you start, it actually does tend to, I think, um, drive people to consider a little bit more the institution itself and what she, not just what she has meant, which of course is the focus right now, but also what the institution means when um, you just in the past, her, her, it was, everything was her majesty, this, that, and now it's his majesty. And that that forces you to ask whether that makes sense and why we still have that system. Yeah, I I was uh, I watched his speech today or his address. Obviously, I mean, uh, you know, he's going to be the oldest person to ever ascend the throne. What is the sense there of of what kind of king he will be? Well, I think that he's he's lived a a, a peculiar life, to to put it mildly. Um, he has been. I think when he, I mean, I, I lived in, in London when I was a little boy, and then I moved to Vancouver when I was seven. But I remember before the age of seven, I remember in that whole period when he was, he was about to get married to Lady Di. And at that stage, he, at least in my childhood boyhood eyes, he seemed a sort of um, a heroic princely figure to be admired. And it was only, I think, really in the years of the divorce and the, the familial problem, marital problems with Diana, that everything changed quite dramatically. And the tabloid newspapers here have a, a lot to answer for in that regard, because they were pretty savagely cruel in their in their characterization of him. And that's not to say that 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 his behavior was blameless and everything, but it is to say that that many marriages are difficult and not all of them are are picked apart in public like that. So um, he gradually assumed this this public image of being rather a, a sort of snooty bore with all sorts of strange predilections and preferences and interests from um, hating new architecture to being obsessed with with sort of um, non traditional medicinal cures and having organic farming. Now, in certain of those areas, he's interestingly sort of been proven to uh, to have some uh, have been a bit ahead of the curve, particularly in environmental issues. 
very concerned about that uh, long in the past. But he he developed over time the reputation as a bit of a crank. And, and to use a more contemporary term, he was not relatable. So right. oddly enough, the Queen was relatable to people in that I think that that her um, her staying in Britain and staying in, in Windsor Castle during the Blitz and all of that really made um, her to many people feel like she was uh, she was part of their larger family, not quite a family member, but that she was somebody that they could sort of relate to, despite being a kind of a different uh, character than everybody else. Um, so in terms of how he would actually lead the country, I think that what he's asserting from the outset is continuity. And um, he is he said in that address that that um, came on the television here at uh, 6 p.m. in the evening and uh, was a what you would expect was a, a sort of somber um, and solemn address. But there's an interesting note that I've that I've detected in the way that he speaks in public, which is that he's a little more personal and a little more emotionally open than I think people expect him to be sometimes. So um, toward the end of his his relatively brief address, he spoke directly to what he called darling mama. Mm-hmm. And he said, as you begin your last great journey to join my dear late papa, I want simply to say this. Thank you. And he's he's he's, I think, showing and exposing himself a little more as an more of a, of a grandfatherly um, loving uh, character. He also sent his love to to Meghan and Harry, who um, who were beginning or not beginning are mm-hmm. are spending their these years abroad, establishing a life there. So I think that um, he will try as much as possible to embody what he believes she embodied. Um, but also, I think to perhaps soften his image. And I think already he may be having success. In a way, the fact that he had been set up for literally decades to be this awful king and this awful guy, I think that that in the end, he can't but outperform it. And he's not a 50-year-old stuffy man who's taking power. He's now an elderly man, is 73. And I think that people will have a certain amount of sympathy for him um, in that regard. And um, certainly when he turned up today, at Buckingham Palace, having come down from Balmoral Castle, where the Queen died, which is um, one of her castles. It's just west of Aberdeen in Scotland. And he made his way down and arrived in a fancy black shiny sedan um, in front of Buckingham Palace, where there was a massive uh, group of people, you can imagine, several thousand. And he stepped out and greeted many of those people. And as he stepped out, the cry that went up was, God save the King. So first of all, it's a little odd to hear that after so many decades of God Save the Queen. But it was interesting that, that, um, that there, was, there is at least some sentiment, not just that they're mourning the monarch who passed, but that there is some wish, among, at least among those enthused there, to, 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 make, the, to make him uh, their, the new focus of their national identity to some degree. My guest is Tom Rackman. He's a Canadian-British author based in England. His novels include The Imperfectionist, which you may know. His upcoming novel is The Imposters. We're speaking tonight about uh, the death of the Queen, of course, and uh, King Charles III. He's making his first real public appearances today and addressed to the nation uh, right at 6 p.m. Uh, in, in England, right at supper time. He stepped out of his vehicle today at Buckingham Palace as well when he arrived from Balmoral in Scotland, where he'd been by his mother's side, um, and also greeted the crowd, stopped to read tributes on bouquets that have been left of the many many that have been left and uh, we're getting a, a bit of an early sense of what he's going to try to be like at least his public image is king uh, but tom you've written about this a lot recently this is a tough time for for britain um you know we over here obviously we read about skyrocketing utility bills you know a government falling a new prime minister coming in that not everyone likes that much um what kind of impact do you think the death of the queen will have on britain as we know it well, uh, for me, the, the question is, how much did the presence of the Queen help the spirit of Britannia over the past five years? Um, that You do read many pieces saying that, that people worry about what comes next. And perhaps they could be right to worry because perhaps uh, it, it could represent a, some sort of a dissolution of, of national spirit in some unforeseen terrible way. The truth is that Britain has been profoundly divided since the lead up to the Brexit vote in June of 2016. And it has not ceased to be a divided nation and a pretty miserable nation in decline since that point. 
I, I don't see that her presence was a was was a salve to that very greatly. Aside from anything else, she wasn't really allowed to ever say anything one way or the other about what she felt about any of this, despite claims in Brexit supporting publications that she was, you know, slyly on the side of Brexit. But who really ever knew? The point is, is that that she she didn't make the country better back then. Uh, whether her absence could make it worse, that's possible. When you look at um, at King Charles, uh, and we were speaking about this, I mean, certainly he, he has a, a bigger propensity for getting involved in things. But you suspect that given the circumstances and what will no doubt be a relatively short reign just because he'll probably fall in his mom's footsteps, don't you think, and just stay out of stay out of trouble, one would imagine? I think it would be pretty startling if he didn't. Um, but at the same time, I think that he's governing at a very different period than his mother was without without some of the deference for elites such as him that that she would have enjoyed um and there's no real you know as much as he's spent all these decades preparing there's also not quite a way to know what kind of monarch you should be because that's determined by the time that you're in and in fact um i think that uh, prince william once made a remark on this he said something like he was asked whether when spending time with the Queen, if they spoke about what it's like to be to do that job. And he said, you know, not really, because it's all de- de- determined by, by what you what is happening then. And you are the, the monarch for your period. And I think that um, he will have to figure out quite what that amounts to. But one part of it is that in the Queen's time, she was able to um, to sidestep. Uh, major issues of the day. And I think that the with many of the cultural changes of, of our own times, it's much harder for people in prominent positions to just stay out of it, to not say anything, because that's often taken as a stance that if you if you do support, if you, let's say you say nothing about Black Lives Matter, or you do say something, that obviously has a hugely different impact on how you're going to be viewed. And you can't just say, well, listen, I'm not going to say anything about anything ever. So I think that he will come under a certain degree of pressure to actually get involved more than she was, that that deference won't be afforded to him, I would suspect. How he navigates that um, might just be by trying to be as bland and pleasant as, as he possibly can. Which will be difficult for him, I think. I mean, I've met, I've met King Charles, and uh, he is a man of opinions. Yeah, I'd love to hear what those were. But. <laughs> it was about the war in Ukraine. This goes back a while, but you know, mm-hmm. he was not afraid to speak his mind. Um, and I, I, it's going to be interesting to watch. I guess, I guess, what we may see is that the country will unite for a time to mourn the loss of the Queen. I think as well that that um, I don't think anybody would say that the Queen had no opinions. It was that she was very, very guarded in ever expressing them, and very uh, clever in not um, revealing quite what she felt. Uh, so I think that one of the things that, that comes out with these um, endless hours of, of people on the radio and television talking about their reminiscences of the Queen is that she had a sense of humor and she did have she had a great deal of knowledge about many different subjects and obviously broad international experience. So she did have views, but she was careful about not saying them. And I think that um, when King Charles was the Prince of Wales, I think that that he was not just a, a younger man, um, but also he didn't yet have that that um, kingly role. So it was it, it is I think it is permitted a little more to to speak out here and there. It's right. just that it makes people nervous. So what do you foresee then for the next ten days or so? I mean, this time of mourning for Britain. What do you expect the mood will be like? What do you expect uh, Britain will look like when it emerges from it? Well, I think that it's going to be overwhelmed by ceremony. Lots of things have been cancelled and um, people will stream down to view her when she when her body is lying in state. On Wednesday, the coffin will be carried by carriage from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Hall, which is a I think it's the oldest building in the parliament. And she'll lie in state there, and they're predicting um, many thousands. I mean, I would say that it'll who, who will file past to pay their respects. Uh, over five days, I would say it'll be hundreds of thousands. I mean, I think it'll be a vast, vast number of people who will go in and out. And I think that that will, that's five days. So I think that um, that will take up a lot of people's attention and time. Then we'll have, of course, the, the, the funeral itself and heads of state and foreign royals will all be flocking here 
for that. So I think that for the for for at least ten days, it's going to be overwhelming, overwhelmingly ceremonial. We will all be very clear on everything that she did and accomplished, and there will be um, a great deal of of glowing sentiment about her. Uh, the The question of of after is is also, I think, the thing that everybody is is looking at and trying to speculate on now, and that's obviously the hardest part of all, because if you are saying that she was this immensely consequential figure who really represented the nation, who held the nation together, then you're implying that maybe the nation falls apart afterwards. Tom Rackman, thank you so much. Thank you. So more than a dozen countries recognize the British monarch as their head of state. That includes us, of course, but also places including New Zealand, Australia, Belize, Jamaica, Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands and others. And in some, the debate over whether or not to sever ties with the monarchy may be reignited by the death of the queen, sparked, of course, by the reality that in many places, Charles traditionally has not been nearly as popular or as well-loved as his mother was. And Australia could be one of those places. Already the leader of the country's Green Party, Adam Bant, in posting condolences to the Queen on social media, or the Queen's family rather, added, now Australia must move forward, saying we need a treaty with First Nations people and we need to become a republic. And there's a history there. The Republican movement in Australia has certainly been more vocal than here in Canada. But what alternative they may have or what the alternative may look like has always been divisive within Republican ranks. Part of why back in 1999, I hope I get this right, a national referendum on becoming a republic was defeated roughly 55% to 45%. So what does the future hold for Australia and its new king? Joining me now is Ben Jones. He's a constitutional historian at Western Sydney University in New South Wales in Australia. Uh, thanks for your time tonight. Uh, always a pleasure to speak to a fellow Ben, uh, though if you don't mind me uh, uh, just correcting you there, but I'm actually at Central Queensland University now oh, Central, in, uh, in my, Queensland. There, my, my mistake, Central Queensland University in Queensland. Um, I should have updated that. I actually saw that on your Twitter account and should have updated that. We'll get off to it. So just the reaction, I mean, it's been you know, here obviously the queen was well well liked as 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 a person and as a monarch. What's the what's the situation been like where you are? Uh, very much the same. Uh, the queen, at a personal level, has uh, enormous admiration, and uh, you did mention in your introduction that uh, the Greens, which uh, in Australia uh, aren't the main left party, the Labor Party is there. Uh, the uh, sort of further left uh, minor party uh, did make some remarks that uh, I think a lot of people thought were, was in bad taste. But yes, uh, there's a there's a difference, I suppose, with the attitude towards the monarchy as an institution and the the Queen as a person and as a monarch, and certainly in Australia well, as well, the uh, the Queen was very much respected and is. Uh, is being mourned uh, here as as she is in your country. Yeah, I mean, tell me a bit about the Republican movement in Australia, because we've seen it sort of from afar. Obviously, as Canadians, we pay attention to other Commonwealth countries who have the monarch as a head of state and how there may be agitations to cut ties. Uh, how has that been over the last, uh, since, you know, in this century, for instance? Well, again, as you mentioned, there was a referendum in 1999 and it was defeated, but it did show that the monarch is no longer a unifying element. So the high watermark of uh, support and admiration for monarchy probably was in the 1950s, especially 54, when the Queen uh, came to Australia for the first time. And the... Part of the longevity of it has been that party politics can divide us, but then we're united under uh, the monarch, who was the symbol of Britishness, and Australians certainly in the 1950s saw themselves as British Australians. As Australia became more independent, moving into the 80s and 90s, there was a move to uh, change that, and and 45% of people supported that uh, move. In this century... uh, Initially, it's, uh, the attitude has been, well, we had a vote and the vote was no, so let's forget about it. But a lot of this support actually is for the Queen and former Prime Minister, uh, a Conservative Prime Minister, I should add, but also a strong Republican, Malcolm Turnbull, 
has uh, made a differentiation saying that Australians are more Elizabethans than uh, than monarchists. And so especially now with her passing, although uh, there'll be a period of mourning, the discussion I think is going to come back about if Australia wants to continue with its constitutional arrangements or look again at a more popular model of republic that might pass a referendum. Now, the process to change that here in Canada, as you might be aware, is quite complicated. You need all 10 provinces and the federal government to agree to it. So it's near impossible that it could happen even if there was a lot of popular support for it, because undoubtedly there would be provinces where it wouldn't be popular. How does it work in Australia? Uh, we have a very high bar as well, but not as not quite as high as in Canada. We have to have an overall majority of people and a majority of the states. But because we only have six states, uh, that means four out of six states have to vote yes, as well as an overall majority. So since we federated in 1901, we've had uh, 44 uh referendum questions put and uh, only eight of those have got up, even though some of them actually did have a majority uh, overall. So it's a, uh, it's, it's a hard mountain to climb. Yeah, certainly. With uh, That's surprising, actually, because normally referenda do, do okay. I mean, in France, they used to use them all the time. De Gaulle used to use them all the time, right? So eight on 44 is a pretty low mark. Tell me about Prince Charles, or at least King Charles, in Australia. I know there's been many. Uh, obviously, we watch the royal visits, you know, when they come here and certainly when they go there. Uh, he's been to Australia many, many times, as far as I can tell. He has quite a close relationship with the country. Uh, yes, that's true. And uh, back in the 1980s, it was actually uh, rumoured that he was trying to get uh, posted as our Governor General. But uh, by that time, there was a pretty strong protocol that it should always be an Australian uh, to serve in that role. So, yes, he's very well known. But uh, in terms of a move to a republic, he, uh, in my estimation anyway, he doesn't quite have that uh, aura around him that the Queen does. And part of that isn't his fault. The media uh, between, certainly from the 1950s to today, is just so much more invasive and he's had his uh, phone hacked and sort of embarrassing personal details of his life have come out. And I suppose that takes away some of the mystique and the romanticism uh, of the royal family and uh, and with uh, the royal scandals and the issues uh, in their marriages and those sorts of things, it very much humanises them. And I suppose that then leads to the next question, well, why does this particular family automatically, through birthright, get to be the head of our nation? Yeah, I think you. I, I read a quote that you gave that it would be a shock to the system when, when Australians uh, were, would start to see sort of things that were once Elizabeth become King Charles instead, you know, the sort of the, the portraits and, and the, the coins and all the things that we have as well. Uh, but that it would be a shock to the system would be a real, it would be jarring. And that in a country where severing ties with the monarchy is somewhat simpler than it is here, that it might lead people to really start questioning, well, wait a second, why, why is this hierarchical monarchical situation, you know, this monarchy still relevant to us? I, I think that's right. And yes, the coins are a very uh, a very visual representation and reminder that we are under a monarchy. And uh, I imagine uh, the Canadian news is also asking what will happen to, uh, to your currency. There's been lots of news uh, reports in Australia about what the process will be. And I suppose uh, to anyone who's under 70, uh, basically, uh, the, the Queen has just been this constant. But we are used to being consulted in a democracy pretty regularly about what we think about this and what we think about that. But with uh, constitutional monarchy, uh, people are having a bit of a shock to the system in realising that when it comes to our head of state, when it comes to uh, things like the coins and, uh, you know, our legal system, as with yours, or the QCs overnight have turned into KCs. And Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of things that actually happen at the moment without public consultation or debate. Yeah, no, that was an interesting one as well. When all of a sudden, I think even the day of yesterday, a lot there was all these announcements coming out from our provincial courts about QCs to cases and uh, and such. And of course, a lot of uh, court cases involved the mention of the Queen and and so forth. So that all had to change quickly. That I gather will be relatively easy uh, when it comes to the currency and so on. Here, at least, it's going to take time. They've already said, listen, it's not something that's going to happen anytime soon. 
Uh, yes, it'll be the same in Australia because they, they do, of course, update the coins anyway uh, over the Queen's uh, long reign, uh, our, our coins and yours as well. Uh, they periodically update them and they go out of circulation anyway. So, uh, yes, I, I don't think we're, we're rushing over here, but the Royal Mint have uh, uh, noted that they'll uh, get those portraits and start introducing them into circulation. And I suppose uh, for collectors, um, it'll be uh, a matter of put some of them in a in a uh, coin jar and your great-great-grandchildren will actually find it a rarity to see a Queen Elizabeth face as today you might have an old King George uh, penny from right. the 20s or 30s. Ben Jones is with us this half hour from Australia. He's a senior lecturer in history at Central Queensland University. We're talking about to the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, uh, the Ascended to the throne of King Charles III and what impact that may have. We've talked about it both in a Canadian context and whether that may push more Canadians to consider our ties to the monarchy. Of course, the the the, the whole method with which we would untie ourselves in the monarchy in this country is very complicated. In Australia, it's a bit less complicated. And they've tried it. There was a referendum back in 1999. It was defeated 55% to 45%. But still, 45% of a population in a referendum about something to change something is pretty significant. I was reading something that you'd written, Ben, that was really interesting just about, and you've written a lot about the royal family over the years and just the impact that sort of the comings and goings, the scandals can have. Has there been, do you think, with the Queen gone, is there any chance that the next generation, you know, William and Kate, uh, now the Prince and Princess of Wales, um, will be able to guard the sort of the, you know, sometimes the unpopularity of Charles in places such as Australia? To an extent, I think that's true. They're uh, obviously a very uh, photogenic uh, couple and, uh, the, especially the uh, photos of them with their kids, which are always uh, very cute, uh, are always popular, uh, particularly in uh, the gossip magazines and uh, sort of lighthearted news stories. So uh, in marketing terms, I suppose, if you want to put it that way, they're a plus uh, for the monarchy. But looking at the history of it, I don't think they quite have the impact that uh, Charles and Diana did, and particularly when they came to Australia in 1988, right. uh, Diana was just an absolute fashion icon. She really actually overshadowed uh, Charles. I'm not sure if it was the same when she uh, when they visited Canada, but, uh, but uh, yeah, she was a real sensation, and um, and uh, again, and then at, at the time, uh, 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 William himself was o only a baby. So we've sort of see, see, seen this before in the previous generation that there's all there's always interest in royal uh, weddings and royal uh, births. But despite the, their enormous popularity in 1988, it was then the 90s that really was the decade of Australia seriously considering becoming a republic. So I think to most Australians, there is a sort of disconnect that you can enjoy them as a celebrity couple. Uh, you can enjoy, uh, you know, watching the latest thing um, that that Kate might be wearing, as as previous uh, uh, previous generation did for Diana. But there's a disconnect between that and thinking about a serious constitutional question if you want to continue with the monarchy. So I think rather than the popularity or unpopularity of a particular monarch or a particular member of the royal family, it's more to do with political leadership. So the key thing that happened, I think, in Australia was uh, from 1991, Australia had a Labor Prime Minister, Paul Keating, who was strongly pro-Republican. And he was able to articulate that in a way that seemed to bring people with him. He never attacked the royals. In fact, he went out of his way to say how much he admired the Queen, but uh, but, but expressed it as a a vision of Australian nationhood that uh, we can almost say, thanks, thanks for everything, but we can take it from here. And that's what really built up a lot of momentum for the Republic. So I think... Uh, Canada's probably uh, hasn't had quite a prime minister yet who's had that particular passion, and that may be why two otherwise quite similar countries, one has sort of had this Republican decade in the 90s and the other hasn't. 
Yeah, I mean, there are, of course, being neighbors with the U.S. who are a republic uh, has has its influences. Of course, you know, it differentiates us to be a constitutional monarchy here. Monarchy here, I think, there is a lot of latent support for the monarchy because of that. Not necessarily over the top support for the institution itself, but just an acceptance that as a constitutional monarchy, it, it differentiates ourselves from some of the chaos that we witness uh, in America. But you're right. It would, it would mm. take, I imagine, in a country like Australia, it would take a positive campaign about how this change makes sense for a modern Australia to rid itself of, of you know, the history of the monarchy in the country and move on. And um, I mean, I, I imagine it would have to be something like that. It would have to be uh, uh, delivered to the Australian people in a way that, that made them proud to make the change. Yes, I think that's right. And uh, just on the US, uh, we we don't uh, compare ourselves to them quite as much as I imagine happens in Canada. But even over here, one of the first things Republicans need to assure people is we don't mean going to a US presidential system. And uh, particularly after uh, the the recent uh, US president, uh, there's actually been a a sense of, well, we're better off sticking with uh, the monarchy. So one of the arguments the Republicans need to say is we're actually, we want to keep a Westminster system as well. We don't want to switch to a presidential system and that uh, in an Australian republic, we would have a figurehead, uh, symbolic head of state in the way that the Queen currently is. And I think you're right also that it has to be a uh, positive campaign because there's there's too much goodwill towards certainly towards the Queen but towards Britain in general. Uh, we're still close uh, trading partners. We've been uh, allies in major world wars, and uh, I certainly don't think any sort of attacking Britain is the way forward for Republicans. But the other thing, the other lesson I would take from 99, though, is the model that was put. They were under such strains to say, look, this will be a small, safe step uh, that they had parliament would just appoint someone. And that that got uh, a lot of actual Republicans offside because they thought, well, if we're going to become a republic, surely we should at least vote for the person or have that role. But then there's a certain contradiction, I suppose, like why bother voting for them if they're not like a US president? Why would you be so passionate about voting for someone who is essentially going to be the ribbon cutter and the and the titular head? Right. Well, the devil is always in the details. Um, I have just about 90 seconds left, but I thought they were supposed to come. I thought the Republican movement was supposed to come up with a definitive plan sometime this year and sort of present it. Uh, Did that not happen? Uh, no, it, it did happen. Um, and uh, if, if you'll excuse the immodesty, it's actually based on a model that I uh, that, that I uh, wrote. And oh, so they're putting forward, well, this is the Australian Republic movement, so you'll have to get me back on because I can talk about this all day. But okay. essentially, uh, it's a hybrid model where every state parliament and the federal parliament will put forward a nominee and then okay. there'll be a general vote for that. So it sort of brings together both sides. Well, that sounds logical. Ben, thank you so much for your time tonight. We will talk again. I'm sure this will come up again in the next little while because I think we're going to be talking about this for a bit as King Charles settles in. Thank you so much for your time tonight. My pleasure. Thank you.